Hey, this is Sharon Pearson. Welcome to Perspectives. Today, we're going to be chatting with Kate Christie, time management specialist, and she's now a single mum and tells international businesses and the Prime Minister's department how to run their calendars. She is also the best-selling author whose latest book, Me First. Welcome my guest, Kate Christie. Hey, everybody. I'm Sharon Pearson, and welcome to the podcast, Perspectives. And joining us today is the phenomenal, the one and only, Kate Christie. Whereabouts are you, Kate? I'm actually in Williamstown, uh, looking out across a sort of a semi kind of foggy morning. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate you giving us the time. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. I was excited and delighted. Good. I'm so pleased. Now you have, there's lots to share about you. You've, that's my, that's all my notes. <laughs> so I'm holding up your book, um, Me First. This is your fourth book, is that right? That's right, my Yeah, fourth. congratulations. How's it going? Me First, The Guilt-Free Guide to Prioritising You by Kate Christie. If anyone's looking for it, how's it going? It's, look, it's going well. It, there, was, there was a slow start because the launch coincided literally with, you know, COVID and lockdown. Mm. And so it, it was a slow start, but... It's got, it's really got its straps on now. And I think it couldn't have been better timing in retrospect because so many people are really sort of sick of being isolated or being in lockdown or working differently. And they're thinking about doing things differently, one of which is putting themselves first. And it's about me first. So um, it's, it's actually starting to really gain momentum. One of the things I've noticed about this time for me personally is it's been a, a gift in terms of reevaluating what matters to me and reprioritizing and really sitting with that. A lot of your book came through as really about values, and that isn't oversimplified. Obviously, we'll break it out in more detail than that and do it real justice. But it was just a real sense of you seeing the importance of values. So I know my values, I've been living them for 17 years, but how you live them can change during times like this, if you have the opportunity. So my husband and I have used this time to reassess pretty well all of how we do what we do in terms of business, what types of businesses we want, what how we want them to be so it makes us really happy and joyful. So this has been, and I know I speak from a position of incredible good fortune that we're in businesses that are reasonably We've come, we're coming out better. So, yeah. And that's not the situation for a lot of people. But speaking from our perspective, it's just this reset opportunity. Yes. And I'm hearing yes. a lot of people say the same thing, that the yep. gift of being able to say, well, how do I want it to be, given this is possible, how do I want the rest of it to be? Are you getting that reflected back to you as well? Very, very much so. It's, mm-hmm. it's a time, look, really, if you look at COVID from a different perspective, it's, it's really been a gift of time where we have been able to step back and really reflect and reframe and think, look, how do I actually feel about this life that I'm living, this pace that I'm working at or living at? Uh, for those who have children, you know, do, do, do my kids actually need to be in 450,000 after-school activities? What do we love doing most? And, yes. and it really has allowed us to slow down and go back to absolute basics. Yeah. Um, it's almost like a, a global tree change in some respects. And it, it has given us a chance to just, you know, reframe, prioritise our life differently and then 
allows you to curate how you want it to look coming out the back end of this because we don't have to return to normal. We don't have to return to business as usual. We can recreate and design that for ourselves. Mm. And that's exciting. It is. I often am amazed when I hear someone say, I just want things to get back to normal. We're in normal. We're there. Yeah. This is the new normal. And this is it. This is it. And making rather than wishing this away, mm. we've got to learn to adapt to this. That's right. And what was so great about normal to start with? You know, we were well, working all the time. And yeah, we some were, people were. Yeah. I got the idea from your book, a lot of people were working really hard. You are a great example of this, and I should have started with this. Kate, you were a lawyer. I was. And you quit. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> You are not going to be the only person who's on this podcast who's hearing this thinking, that's me. I, yeah. So share you a little bit of your story, which is probably where I should have began, but I was amazed. So you had three young children under? Three under three. <sighs> yeah, or three and a bit. Three under three and a bit. I don't know. Look, it all blurred into one. I was, yeah, I, it was you know, I, my first two were 17 months apart and it was, it was the pressure of having twins without any of the glory. You know, I always had kind of two in nappies and there was a period of my life where I just did not leave the house because their sleeping patterns were completely different. So one was always awake and one was always asleep. And then I was pregnant as well. I mean, I was a lunatic, absolute lunatic. I am not going to throw your ex-husband under the bus too much, but I definitely got the impression and help me out if I'm inaccurate. You were a one man band in a two person relationship there should have been two adults in the relationship and there seemed to have been one and if I've got it wrong please help me out but yeah look he I guess it was in some respects and to be fair um I guess it was he took a traditional approach to the family unit where he was working he had a important job he was earning great money for the family and so I was doing the care piece, plus I wanted to work as well, so I was juggling that. Um, but the moment you get to that, Kate, you have to redefine the relationship and what it means to oh, be absolutely. traditional. I mean, absolutely. traditional is the woman stays home. You didn't have traditional. You had a, a very successful legal a career in law. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All are off, mate. <laughs> I've been emptying the dishwasher. <laughs> help the hell out please yeah Yeah. look definitely and I say in the book you know I I reflecting on it and looking back because you remember these things there was literally there were two occasions where he stayed home from work when the kids were sick Mm. two like two Yeah. yeah um and and partly it was because he had a role where you know, he was a barrister, so he if he had to be in court, he had to be in court. Yeah. But I also had a role where, you know, I had to be in Sydney or I had to be yes. in a meeting, um, you know, across the other side of Melbourne or I had to be, but I was always the one who then um, made it work. And So do you think that's how this book came about? Because maybe I've gone too personal too early, but I just, <laughs> I'm always interested in the thinking behind the thinking. And we'll get to the solutions you offer in the book and they're terrific and they're doable and they free up 30 hours a month, which is what you're really known for. I just got this real sense. This was you attempting to make sense of how do I navigate me having quality of life when around me people aren't as committed to my quality of life as I am? Very much so. And I think it's very typical of 
of women who are professionals who work and who are also mums. Um, and, you know, look, I've built a business around yes. it. So it's yes. very, very typical yeah. and it's, it's frustrating. And as, as much as I'd like to kind of be able to solve for that whole dynamic within relationships and, um, you know, make blokes step the hell up, mm. um, I don't know whether or not it's, there's a simple solution to that. And, and I have this debate all the time. I'll go and do speaking engagements or whatever and, and you know, there'll be a variety of kind of responses to this, that actual piece, that dynamic. Mm. And, and some, some women will stand up and they'll, they'll say, listen, um, you know, I get everything you're saying, but, you know, essentially my husband's my fourth child or my fifth child or my second child. How do I make him do stuff? Mm. So there's that dynamic. And then there's a different dynamic where some women get up and they're quite aggressive about it in terms of, well, why didn't you insist on your husband sharing mm. half the load? And as women, why don't we insist? And it shouldn't be like this. So you almost have that kind of, um, tongue-in-cheek but really please help me with my husband because he is a child versus the really aggressive um, this has to change it needs to change now and you're writing about it so you should be changing it mm. and it's it's an interesting debate because I couldn't change that in my own marriage and ultimately my marriage ended not for that reason in particular for a multitude of reasons you know marriages end right um, mm. but having come out the back end of the marriage and then reflecting, I think once I was out of the marriage, it was easier for me to actually identify that I didn't get the help I needed. Yes. And perhaps I wasn't you prepared really to have that discussion. It, <laughs> I could have told you when you were in it, we didn't need to get post-marriage. You did not get the help you deserved. And, yeah. and I'm going to reframe it, Kate. It's not that you didn't get the help you deserved. It's not helping you. It's both partners contributing to the solutions. There's a different energy when you say they're here to help you, like it's all on you. Yeah. It's not all on you. It's yeah. on both. Both had sex. Both produced the baby. It's This is a team effort. It didn't happen just by me, Immaculate Conception. So it's not helping you, Kate. No, and, and I, I get that. But the other thing I talk about in the book, which was really real for me, was there, firstly, there was this expectation on me from my, from all of, pretty much all the men around me, to be honest, mm -hmm. apart from my dad, if I'm, if I'm fair, my dad was always saying, you know, you should be working, do what you love. But in terms of my, my male colleagues, my male boss, my male two-up boss, my male husband, um, male friends, there was this overarching expectation that I would be the one who would take a career break. I would be the one who would, you know, manage the children. Um, but on top of that, you know, in, in to be 100% honest, I also wanted to be that one. You did. So, yeah. it, it, you know, it's at the same time, and I talk about this in the book in terms of this conflict, um, it would be so easy for me to say, oh, well, my bloody ex-husband never helped, mm -hmm. rah, rah, rah. Um, but that's not quite true because he did, do, he did help, but also um, there's no point in me saying, oh, well, my bloody ex-husband, blah, 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 because I was the one who wanted to stay home when the kids were sick. 
I was the one. Women's experiences with yeah. children, you know, so many women. They don't let it. go, but they know they need to let go. That's it. I, I didn't let go. I knew I needed to let go, but ultimately, I was rational enough to kind of work through that process in my head. And if he'd said on more than two occasions, "I will stay home with them today," I probably would have said, "No, I'll do it," yeah. because I thought I was better at it. I wanted to be in control of it. I wanted to make sure they were okay. I wanted to be the one that was there. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to kind of husband bash and blame the blokes. But part of it, a big part of it for me was I wanted control of it. Yeah. Yes. I think a lot of women can relate to that. I don't think you're going to, I'm sure you know this. There'd be so many women saying, and also men, can, this is sweeping generalizations. Let's just be clear. Everything we're saying is massive generalizations about the human experience and their perspectives. But a lot of women say to me, I don't know how to let go because when he goes to do it, he's kind of fumbling about. And, and the perfectionist in us, which you speak about, the business in us, the need to be in control, the need to be on top of it, to, not, to be guilt-free, to not be shamed, a lot of that drives, which isn't really healthy stuff now, I'm saying it out loud, a lot of it, that's not healthy. Nothing I just listed is a good place to come from when it comes to this. No, that's right. And so I think it's just too kind of simplistic and too lineal to say, um, you know, there were two people in the relationship and you, you both had sex and produced the children and, you know, the husband should step up. It's it's just so much deeper and complex than that. And whilst I'm not sort of saying, oh, well, it was all my fault that I kind of carried the load, I'm saying that I was definitely someone who contributed to the problem. Yeah. I don't have, we don't have kids, but my husband and I have spent 17 years renegotiating marriage. Mm-hmm. Really, because we were very traditional when we came to it. When we came in, we got married nearly 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was the dark ages. So back in the time of the dinosaurs. (laughs) My kids call it the olden days. (laughs) Yeah, I'm from the olden days. We, it was very traditional. I did the meals, but he still was quite self-sufficient, definitely. But together we have come back to our values and renegotiated. And so... It's not on any one of us. He calls me out when I'm trying to stay in control too much. So I take your point about it's not simplistic, but it's also not on only the woman to solve her need for control. I think the husband or the life partner, however that's defined, can play a role in saying, I think you're holding on a little tight. And that's what JP's done for me. You're holding on a little tight here. It's okay to let that go. Which is great. Which is great that you can, you know, have that discussion. I think... When I was in the mix of it, you know, the dark ages, if you like, the dark times when three babies under three and a half and you're right in the mix of it, if he'd suggested to me um, that I was being too controlling or I was holding on too tight, I probably would have, you know, lost my shit and gone absolutely nuts at him because, you know, it was like don't poke the bear, you know. Mm -hmm. It was so um, and, and look, the other thing is that, um, in any relationship, I think that we we play roles and we, regardless of whether it's traditional or non-traditional, we basically work to our strengths and you assume roles. So, for example, my husband did all the cooking. 
he, yeah. he was a terrific cook. I hate cooking. And, you know, that's probably one of the worst things about my marriage ending is that I now have to cook and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeless at it. And the kids will always laugh, you know, like I've got three dishes and we you just rotate them <laughs> like every three days. Um, Leftovers counts as a new dish. Yeah. And so, you know, he did all of that stuff because you assume roles, right? So he did all of the outside gardening, maintenance, fixy kind of things. I did nothing like that because I have no interest he managed all the finances because that's all the stuff that he loved and he was good at. I had no interest. So, you know, we, you play roles in a relationship and, and when the relationship ends, all of a sudden there's these gaps that you have to plug. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden it was like, oh, my God, I don't even know how to open a bank account. You know, I'd been married for 22 years. We got married really young. Um, how do I get a mortgage? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I budget? Um, you know, things like, you know, yesterday was an absolute classic. The dishwasher wasn't working. So I got my 18 year old son. I said, look, let's try and work out what's going on and let's kind of undo the plugs and, you know, work this out. And it was, it was hilarious because at one stage he, and it wasn't his fault because I didn't know what we were doing either. He's kind of undone the plug and this jet of water just goes shooting across the kitchen. It was like a freaking fire hose and, and, and we couldn't work out how to turn it off. And it was just like, and, um, and I, and, and I ended up ringing my ex-husband saying, what do we do? Because there was water everywhere. So we got him on FaceTime and he turned, told us which taps to turn off and we play roles. And when that person leaves, there's no one playing that role and there's a big learning curve. Mm. One of the things that I teach here um, with our beautiful members is about the roles we play and we get really clear on defining them. And I think the toxicity, I say all the time, the toxicity is in the rigidity. So when we've decided that's our role and we're rigidly holding on to it, that's when there's this. It's when we're willing to discuss, well, does it have to be my role and is there a different way of approaching it? There can be a little bit more fluidity in the relationship. Yeah. Yeah, that's... that's is terrific, yeah. Yeah, that's how JP and I approach it. We're hopefully modelling that um, when I teach it. And so when my, my husband doesn't say to me, you're being really controlling, I flare up. He just says, maybe you can let go of that or how about you leave that to me today or... Are you sure you don't need to have a rest now or is that really? So he's on my team in terms of my well-being, mm-hmm. not in pointing out my flaws. Yeah. So yeah. there's a different, that, that's the approach I think maybe that makes this work. And can yeah, that's bring, great. Because mm. because otherwise it is a conflict and I can make it a conflict. God, I can flare up at a, that. It's, <laughs> <laughs> that, that I, I'm the fire, he's the flow. And so when he says maybe it's time to sit down, my immediate reaction is no, I want to do it because I want to be at all. Like we need to start talking about your book because that's, that can be me. I can easily go into the role of overheroing. That's my favourite role to be the hero. I know it so well, Kate. I can be the hero. I can take care of things. I know the answers. I'm in control and it manages my anxiety. Letting go and still managing my anxiety, that's that's my great challenge of life. That's the great yeah. challenge. And he helps me with that on, and because I need help with that because alone I'm just going to be this lone warrior growling at anything like a mama bear that comes near my patch of turf. <laughs> I can smell you a thousand kilometres away. Back off. And, just, 
as you know, I'm coming in and this can be different and maybe let the dishes sit there. And that's just overcoming years of programming, just years of the stuff that I'm just so used to how I define myself. There's something you said earlier, you had a lot of men, you had a men, the men, the boss, the second in charge, whatever. I actually get it from women. I actually have found most of the questions I've got questioning my place in having successful businesses and working as I did seven days a week. Mm. It's mainly women, Kate, who have questioned it and questioned. It's confronting, isn't it? And yes. It's, and it's, it's disappointing because... You know, we think about it in terms of this, you know, sisterhood and kind of let's back each other and and celebrate each other's choices and and celebrate your success. You know, and and I find that that judgment is so disappointing. And it's one of the big mistakes we make as women, our preparedness to to judge each other for our life choices and bring each other down. And it it um, it infuriates me. You said in your book at one point, I've made a mark of it. It was it was actually women saying all the comments like, shouldn't you breastfeed and should you really be at work? And really I've heard that I think it was actually a man who's, I, I don't think it's really gender specific, but yeah. you're getting it from all these places, these messages that have to be universal to women about how you should be a mother. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I can't. The comment, the comment. Oh, what are you doing with your children? Oh, I'm going to put them in childcare. Oh, I've heard that children in <laughs> childcare come out much more anxious than children. And it's like, oh, okay, thanks for that. Thanks for the support. Appreciate it. Yeah. And and how you know how what else do you think I should be doing here? Should yeah. I you know give up my fantastic career um, and tread water for the next five years and then try to get back into work, which we all know does not work. There's this wonderful example that I read about a while back that it reminded, when I was reading your book, it reminded me. Uh, a man was walking down the supermarket with two kids doing the shopping. Two women stopped him saying, aren't you amazing helping out so much? And he's like, why are you saying I'm helping? I, why does it help when I do, a man does it and when the woman does it, no one walks up to the woman with two kids and says, it's great that you're helping out. It's just this <laughs> assumption of yeah. where the energy should flow. That's it. And it's the language we then use to describe yes. it. And and I think that's what kind of gets your goat, doesn't it? And, <laughs> and, and, and one of the things in terms of that, you know, commentary that people have about your life choices and that judgment, one of the things that was really fascinating for me um, after um, we separated, because my husband, um, he sort of instigated the separation. So it was, you know, he said that he wanted to, to separate and one of the things that I found phenomenal um, shortly after it happening, because we live in a really small community and, you know, your kids all play sport together and, and you've been around and you're in a partnership forever together and all of a sudden you separate. And it causes this ripple through the community where, oh, my God, if, if they didn't survive, then we might not survive. And, mm. and what does that mean about my marriage if their marriage, you know, falls apart? And it's you're dealing with everyone else's yeah. concerns and grief over their marriage. It's like, what the hell? You know, guys, I've just lost my husband. You know, yeah. you know let's not talk about you and your marriage. Um, and I didn't really yeah. want to talk about it anyway, but um, I'm a very, very private person. So I did not talk about it very much. But one of the things that really struck me was within a couple of weeks of, are separating 
Um, I had three different women, three separately approach me and say words to the effect, oh, my God, you are so lucky that he left you. My husband will never leave me and I'm mm. stuck with him forever because I don't earn enough money to be able to leave my husband. And if I tried to leave, I wouldn't get a good payout um, because he'd be resentful. You're so lucky that your husband left you because he probably feels guilty and you'll get a good settlement. I wish my husband would leave me. That's so sad. And I'm like, what the What hell? have they done? Why are they putting themselves in that position? It just, I found it flabbergasting oh. on every level, you know. Don't, Women, don't, have your own money. Just Every you know, woman listening, have your own money. You're, it is you're, so it, important. This is Give it. yourself your own choices. Never There's no kind of knight in shining armour who turns no. into a crusty old bloke in rusted armour who you're stuck with. You know, be yourself. Have a great job that you love. Start a business that you love. Earn money for yourself. Be yes. independent. You are not an appendage. No. No, that'd be hilarious in our marriage. <laughs> Honestly, so that was—I remember—that just struck me, and yes. I—it'll it, never leave me. And I—I I also think with sadness about how these women are living. Yes, they're compromising the everything. They're not able to live their values. They don't even have any, a way of expressing their values because everything's compromised. Everything is putting an old, outdated mode of marriage before themselves. It's too, that can't be healthy for how we feel about ourselves. So our self-esteem goes down. So we feel we have less choice because we feel less confident until there's a cycle of, I feel I'm completely trapped and I'm helpless. I have no way through it. That's what we can do to ourselves. If we let that play out to its extent, to the Mm. zero sum game it is. Mm. And and just, you know, I I worry about their level of, of happiness and, and their ability to kind of live a life that's, genuinely true to who they are yeah. and their values yeah. and yeah very very sad and to get to 50 and look back and think i haven't been authentic i've only compromised yeah. and it's getting a bit long in the tooth to do much about it i find that i would find that one of the things that terrifies me kate and drives me and keeps me on my toes in life is when i think about my last dying breath how did we get here we don't even have red wine right now but anyway (laughs) my last dying breath I always think I will meet the person I could have and should have been when I'm when I'm only looking back and Mm. it'll be too late to do anything about it and it just that is my number one driver that when I take my last breath the person I meet that I should have been is me and I have been that person and it just and that's not always easy to do because the compromise sometimes, it's a slippery slope. The little compromise becomes a little bit of a bigger wedge until it's the doors open and then everyone just comes through the door. So, yeah, I, I, I love that. I love that analogy. And, and you know, circling back, way back to one of the questions you wrote, you asked at the start in terms of did I write the book, I guess, um, you know, I turned 50 this year and it's, it is very reflective and it's about saying, you know, don't compromise too much. This is me first, you know. Have have the confidence now that you'll have when you turn 50. So if you're 20 or you're 30 or you're 40, I want women to read this book and have that level of confidence I have now, regardless of what age they are. You know, don't, don't compromise. You know, don't always put everyone else first. 
when you do put yourself first, don't do it with guilt. I mean, <laughs> be the best version that you can be and live this amazing, awesome life right now. That's a whole learning curve. There, there are women in our programs who are older than 50 who are still only just realising that that's even a choice. And it's amazing them. And I love seeing how they light up over time. Mm. So what was it for you? So help with this, the chronology. What inspired the book? I know you've done a previous book that was a bestseller. on. And what was the title of that book? Uh, my first book was called Me Time. Which was sort of around creating the the time and the space. I guess this one, me first, is a lot more opinionated. So it's also about creating time. Um, Well, there's more of me in it. I think my first book, which was obviously my very first book, I played it really safe. And so, whilst I the book definitely teaches. Um, people a framework in terms of how to get back 30 hours of lost time a month yeah um that was kind of it that was here's the framework read this follow the framework you'll get time back Mm. whereas this time round, it's more there's more of me in it in terms of well this is why you deserve to have the time back when you have the time back this is you know how you should be spending it you know set and create some audacious fantastic goals for yourself or your family your career Um, It's also around, you know, I've been around for 50 years now and I've worked in corporate. I've worked um, at the highest levels of corporate. I've run, um, I run my own very successful business. I've kind of at that stage in my life where um, I'm, I'm phenomenally confident and happy in my own skin. I love my life. I love what I've created. And I wish I'd had this level of confidence when I was 25. So, you know, it's about saying, um, you know, put yourself first, understand what your values are, live those values. Um, Because once you actually identify exactly what your values are, what you're prepared to get out of bed for, it makes it very easy to say no to everything else. And as women, we're so often people pleasers. Whereas if you have that laser-like focus on what's most important to you, the rest just becomes white noise and it's really easy to dial it down. Not everybody's comfortable though. I've got to, I agree with you. The values are the core to how my husband and I live our lives. Not everybody loves that that's what I do. So when I, if I speak up to someone and say, well, my value, so one of my core values is emotional truth. Mm-hmm. If I speak my emotional truth to somebody, so saying, hey, I really feel we need to make a better connection. I've had someone, I've had people get upset about that. And defense. So it takes courage Does. to stay true to yeah, values. Wow. What's the thinking behind saving 30 hours, finding 30 hours a month? Tell us about that. Yeah, so look, it's, it's actually really simple. There's a five-step framework that I developed um, a number of years ago called SMART. And when you work through the five steps, you will find your 30 hours of lost time. So step one, self-aware where you identify exactly what your time pain points are, what's getting in the way. And you also then reflect and look at your values. You know, what's most important to me? And we've already talked about why we do that. Um, step two is... Hang on, slow down, slow down, slow down. Okay, okay. So step one is... Self-aware. Get self-aware. Yes. That's a massive topic. I read in... You, you, you covered quite a few areas in the book. And it, it's more than just know your values. It's... Being honest with yourself. Yes. Very so, much so. Yeah, I've got it here. It's one of my many dog tags. 
Let me just find it. So, because I, I really enjoyed it. If you could take over, I'll just fumble about trying to find the spot in the book where you start talking about Yeah, so, you know, well, self-aware, it is, it is bigger than know your values. It's, it's be honest with yourself, you know, reflect really on what's getting in the way, what's tripping you up, what's challenging you. Where do you want to be spending your time? What's most important? Because having that clarity means, as I said earlier, you can dial down on everything else. So what were some of the things that someone might get aware of under self-awareness? So for me, I immediately hear get clarity on my values, but I don't think everybody knows how to know what they value. Yeah, so look, it's – and your values, well, I like to think of them as sort of vanilla values and then, you know, the essence of your behaviour. So the vanilla values are, you know, honesty and integrity and trustworthiness. And, you know, I sort of like to think we've all kind of got that. So if someone asks you to reflect on what your values are, I want you to dig deeper than that. You know, we're all honest, hopefully. We all have integrity. No one's honest, actually. Well, we should be. We yeah, should no be. one can be, though. We can't, all, we can't all be honest with everybody all the time. That, I, I would literally have no one left in my life if I always said what was on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can always be honest with yourself. You don't yes. have to actually be honest yes. out loud. Yeah, don't have to be honest out loud. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what I want is people to kind of take themselves into that room of mirrors and have a really good hard look. And the, the easiest way for me to describe it to people is think about what your behaviours say about you. Ask the people around you what they think nice. your values are because your behaviours and the way you live, work and operate are going to really bring to the fore what's yes. most important to you. Yeah. Um, then the other thing is to ask yourself questions like, um, you know, if I was really sick lying in bed, mm. what would I get out of bed for? Or if I, if I receive a compliment, what do I love to be complimented on? Yes. Um, if I'm talking and engaged and having some amazing conversations with my best friend over a bottle of red wine, what am I talking about? Mm. And that's going to help you dig deeper. Um, so my, and I, and I share this really openly with people. I've done a heap of work on this and my three, and it changes depending on where you are in your life. But my three, are my kids, my business and my health. Mm. So anything that to do with my kids, mum, can you be here? Mum, can you do that? Mum, can you, it's an easy yes. Yeah. But then if people ask me about things that are then to do with my kids, but doesn't involve my kids, it's an easy no. Mm. So, Kate, can you be the um, chairperson of the basketball committee for the next 800 years of your life because your kids play basketball? No, because, yeah, it's got to do with my kids, but it's not with my kids. Mm. Um, if it's anything to do with my business, you know, opportunity to come on this amazing podcast or, you know, opportunity to coach or mentor um, a young businesswoman or whatever, that's an easy yes. Mm. And then my health and well-being so you know go and exercise eat well everything else then is an easy no for me you know dating catching up with my friends all the time um you know being on that basketball committee all of those multitudes of, of requests that come in they're just not a priority for me at the moment yeah so one of the ways i look at values is what is it i want to experience more of and what is it I'm not willing to experience anymore? So I have a way of what's my flashpoint? Like what's my hard, what's my hard line? 
Yeah. What do I not want to experience and what is it I do want to experience, which is why I have my own businesses, because yeah. what I'm not willing to experience is compromising around culture. I want the culture to be a certain way. I want us to have certain experiences. I want people who work here to be able to experience workers being fully themselves. Bring your inner freak. You know, make sure you know you're in a place where you can express yourself and if you can't here, you shouldn't be here. So a lot of what I infuse it with is what do I love experiencing and what won't I tolerate? Yeah. And I create values around it. Yeah. And, and it's really helped me. So one of my core values is wisdom. And it mm-hmm. isn't to say that I'm wise. But yeah. I have that value because I, it, I've noticed my pain points in my past have been poor decision making when I mm-hmm. have not allowed myself to be as informed as I needed to be. I've made decisions based on limited information or information that made me comfortable and was consistent with my BS beliefs. And I've made the decision. It's been the wrong decision because I didn't go about seeking facts. I went with my, you know, facts aren't feelings. And facts yeah. don't care about your feelings. So get the facts if you're going to go out and do it. Yeah. So I have a core value wisdom to protect me and to guard me and to help me stay on track. But wisdom also helps me because it nurtures the types of relationships I want and the conversations I want to have mm-hmm. and how I want to invest my time. I love learning. I love discussing with people ideas. I love hearing people's perspectives. But if I didn't have that value, Kate, and I just didn't have values, any conversation would do, and I'd wonder why I was feeling empty or I was feeling things right. were hollow or yep. What's going on? I just don't feel right. But I know why. It's because I compromised and did a BS conversation instead of one that matters. That's it. So it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, you, you've got to look at your values as your guiding light. What, yes. what makes me happy? What fulfills me? What fills me up? And, and I like to think of it, you know, I go to sleep at night and sort of one of my rituals or one of the things I do when I'm sort of winding down is I think about, you know, have I lived a values day, a values driven day? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be kind of empty la la kumbaya, let's kind of all chant to the God of values. It's more about have I been authentic? Have I said yes to the things that most are most important to me? But more importantly than that, have I said no yeah. to the things that just aren't important to me? Yes. And and, and that's it. that's what then helps me go to sleep. And if I'm lying awake at night, it's those times where I'm frustrated and I think bloody hell I said yes to that and I know it's not something I really want to do oh I so get that I had two lost days about three weeks ago and I JP came home how was your day I failed myself today I let myself down it was not a values driven day and it Mm. feels really icky I don't have trouble going to sleep now because I know I lost my day I didn't do the I didn't do me today how could I not have done me and then I did it again it's like okay I'm putting it down to to virus craziness and then I was back it's like I really was out of sync Kate and I felt this frustration with myself and I thought, this is how I would feel if I didn't know my values and I just reacted in you know, automatic mode to what was coming along and wondered why I was feeling jaded or distressed. That's by the it, day. yeah. And, and people say, oh, well, you know, you've got to trust your gut and you've got to, you know, um, go with your gut. And if you go with your gut, then that's aligned to your values. But that's not always the case. No. Um, we can because... have the conversation you want to have. We'll just Sorry, say... okay. Do you need me, Jesse? Okay, thanks, honey. Sorry about that. The dishwasher exploded yesterday. I've got the internet. You're fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, no, people will say trust your gut. 
because your gut is your inner lens and it will, you know, if, you, if your gut says it's right, then it's right. But that's not the case because your gut is just going off muscle memory. Yep. And, and it feels right because that's the decision you made last time and last yep. month and six months ago. So I'm very data-driven and I think it's sort of, it, it aligns in some ways to what you're saying about wisdom. You know, I want the data. Make decisions yep. that are data-driven. Um, get the data and then test it or stress test it against your gut because that will help you make the right decision. But don't you've make those decisions alone. You've got to trust whether you know if it's based on good experiences. That's if, it. It's just If you've done the same mistake over and over again and you're saying, I'm going to trust my gut, you're literally relying on a flawed plan. Let's just do that <laughs> again, shall we? Because I swear the thousandth time it'll be fine. That's it. That's that whole definition of madness, you know, totally. doing things the same way and expecting a different outcome. My gut was the most unreliable indicator for the first two, three, uh, two or three years of me coming out of the black hole of not being me. So 18 years ago, I started realizing I'm not being me and I don't know what that means. I need to do something about it. My gut was the last place I was going to go. My gut was built entirely on fear, intolerance, judgment, self-doubt, and the need to protect myself from all hurt. My gut was the last indicator. There were there was nothing good in my gut, and including my health. What a shock because my gut health was so bad as well. Listening to that, Kate, I'd still be at home in bed because it's the only place I felt safe. So I stayed in bed for two weeks. I'm listening to my gut. Yeah. It's not. It, it's not. A, it becomes reliable. My intuition now, based, I call intuition learned experience. Yeah. My intuition now is very solid. There's enough data behind it and reference points to know I can trust my gut because I've done this so many times successfully before. Yeah. But where I don't have intuition, investing in stocks, I'm not going to trust my gut. Yeah. Um, doing a new business deal I've never done before. My gut's not going to be enough if I don't have strategies around it. You're yes. spot on. Exactly. It's got to be, you know, data Data is king. So I always, in anything that I'm doing, um, from, you know, writing the books to running the business to making decisions about, you know, our finances or whatever, get the data. Yeah, great. So I love it. So first one, self-awareness. Yes. And you need to read the book to do it justice, but that was a really good flavour of it. Tell us about uh, M. So M is the map. So this is where I get you to map preferably a couple of days of your this life. This is great. This exercise is really good. It made me a bit nervous, the accountability. Yeah, people, look, I, I do pre-warn people. It's incredibly tedious. From the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed, I want you to jot down your time and what you're doing, how often you switch tasks how often you're interrupted, who are you interrupted by, how often you're distracted, um, jumping in and out of emails and phone calls. Um, You'll fill a couple of pages, um, but it's data that will change your life because you will see exactly where you're spending your time. And most people who come to me to work with me one-on-one, which are sort of high-performing teams or, you know, CEOs or C-suite execs or business owners, what you see is they're just pinning, pinning around like a little silver ball in a pinball machine. It's just boom, 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 just completely reactive. Reactive and bushfire management. Is this the work you do? I know you've got some pretty good clients. You've work, you're working with Westpac, L'Oreal, Deloitte, PwC, Department of the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. Is this the type of work you're doing with them? Yeah, yeah. So um, with those sort of organisations, it's um, group workshops, um, some one-on-one coaching for the sort of the more senior exec members. Mm. But, yeah, this is exactly the framework, the five steps that I take them through. 
Mm. Well, the yeah. less reactive you are in leadership, the more effective you can be because you're setting the sale the direction you want to go instead of reacting to a sale that just took you off course. That's it. That's it. And it always amazes me when I'm working with, you know, some really senior people or senior organisations, how little time um, the most senior leaders make for strategy. And it's because mm. they're so bogged down in doing the doing yeah. and, and in doing the delivery that, they, you know, they put off strategy. And as the most senior leaders of the organisation, you know, 80% of their time should be spent on strategy. Yep. And so it's about kind of cleaning the slate, taking away all the sort of the crap and the, and the, the noise so that they can focus on exactly what they need to focus on. But you can't do that until you've mapped your time and you know exactly where you're currently spending your time. Mm. Um, do you recommend people take time out as well to start? Because part of mapping is designing your dream day, which is one of our favourite exercises here at TCI. So we, have, we call it design your ideal day. Mm-hmm. And design your ideal average day, the day you would want to do forever. So once you've been to Tahiti and stand on the beach for two weeks and now you've bought <laughs> your bed and you can't, eat any, can't drink any more margaritas, you've come back to life and describe your ideal day. This exercise really maps beautifully it took me 10 years for me to go from designing my ideal average day to living it that's how much i had to re-engineer aspects of my business and my life yep and create the delegation that you speak so much about took me 10 years to get to having my ideal average day i I don't know if if that's a good message or not but that's what it was for me it was a pretty major overhaul because i was in every aspect of my business i was the business Yep. And now I'm not. Now I'm a guest in my own show, which is fantastic. So talk about that because I love that section, designing your dream day. Yeah, and it, look, I, the, very similar to what you've said. You know, I say, look, you know, your dream day, I don't want to see the, you know, the day that you're spending on a beach in Bali. Um, it, it's around what would a typical day look like if it just ran perfectly and smoothly and to your agenda yeah um and and, you know there's three key problems i see when i'm working with professionals firstly that they're not planning to succeed so they don't have the big five-year plan they don't have the vision they don't have it mapped out so they know exactly where and what they need to do the second thing i see is that they're not controlling the agenda so they're just being a hundred percent reactive to the loudest noise the biggest bang um, and, and they're not actually taking control. And the third thing is that they That's don't exhausting. focus. Anyone who's yes. living that way, stop it immediately. But You're they everybody, everybody around you. It's tiring being around you right now. <laughs> and you have to be the martyr because you're so busy reacting to the bushfires. So you're literally creating this cycle of how tough it is. And I, people that keep saying, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, it really frustrates me. It drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. When people say, oh, Sharon, I don't interrupt. You must be so busy. No, I'm not. I actually have designed it that this is the most important thing I'm going to do right now and I'm fully present to it. I'm looking forward to it. Let's get off this treadmill of claiming and comparing how busy we are. I know. It's this whole, it's this badge of honour. You know, I'm, I'm in the busy club and and it's not actually something we should be boasting about no. because every time you tell someone how busy you are, you, you basically, you know, you bump into someone, oh, how are you? Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, my God, I'm so busy too. And then you talk about how busy you are and really what you're saying is, you know, how are you? Oh, I'm so unproductive. Oh, I'm so unproductive too. You know, that's what you're saying when you tell people how busy you are. And I so like that. Everyone who's listening now, you, everyone who's listening or watching this podcast, you can't say it anymore because we've had this conversation now. It's out there. You're yep. bragging about being unproductive and reactive. 
that's it. And, and, you know, that's what then people judge you on. So, you know, if people ask you how you are, I'm great. I'm terrific. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I'm in the, I'm in the moment. I'm focused. I'm living my dream day. Um, You'll have such a better conversation coming Mm. out of that. Let's all um, commit as a result of this conversation to resign from the I'm busy club and join a better club. I'm living my values club. I'm living my dream club. I'm on the pathway to re-engineering parts of my life and it's a really interesting journey I'm going through or I'm learning lots about myself. There are so many more interesting ways to perceive a day rather than I'm busy. That is so, it's so, it's so banal. It's so, it's such a negative concept and, and, as parents, we're kind of um, contaminating our children with our busyness. You know, we're making them busy. And, and you think about your kids and all of those after-school activities and the rushing around and how many things you drag them to over the weekend in terms of, you know, pony club and softball and yeah. dance and, and yeah. then all the parties and, and accepting every single party invitation. And yeah. we're, we're creating a new generation of, of busyness. Mm. Who, and getting significance from it. There's a lot of studies show we need to feel that we match and that we're significant. It's just be careful where you get your significance and draw your significance from. Mm. Knowing you matter and knowing you're significant is really healthy. It, is, mm-hmm. it helps our well-being tremendously, our psychological well-being. But if you draw your energy or your significance from bragging about things that are leading to feeling unproductive, it looks good on the outside, but the inside's just brittle. Mm-hmm. And really struggling and tired and inauthentic. Yeah, and and no real level of happiness or satisfaction no. around that. No, exactly. So we're going to design. We're in mapping, and we've designed our ideal, and we've still got all these different. So someone will be listening is going, yeah, that's great for you to say, but you don't know my schedule. So we're getting there. We're getting into the analyze stage. So what do we do in this stage, Kate? Please. So with analyze, you basically take your time maps and every task you've performed will fall into one of four categories your musts your wants things that you can delegate or things that you can reject yeah so your delegation your reject categories are where all of the gold of your lost time oh, yes. is. that's where you're going to find your 30 hours yes um we break it down so delegation can be the your typical kind of delegation at work um but it's about teaching you how to do that effectively. I just see this in families, Kate. When I was reading a book, I was just thinking of every mother who's screaming mm. on the inside and got the makeup on perfectly on the outside, just feeling this real sense of, well, I'm looking like I'm in control. Yeah, like, that whole duck on the water thing and the yeah. bit of going crazy underneath. Yeah, so, I want them to have this so that they can feel great on the inside and feel yeah. that they're really... They're doing a good job for themselves, not just everybody else. That's it, yeah. So on the home front, delegation falls into two categories. There's outsourcing. So that's where you look through those maps and you identify everything that you currently do that you're prepared to pay someone else, an expert, to do because they will do it faster, better and cheaper. They're my three rules for outsourcing. Yes. Then there's insourcing where you identify everything you currently do for the people that you live with, a.k.a. your kids and your partner that yeah. they can do for themselves that you don't have to pay them for. Yeah. Clean up your floor drobe, hang up your wet towel, load the dishwasher, unload the dishwasher, cook dinner, go to the supermarket, put away all your crap, feed the dog, walk the dog. So there's so much that we do. Up after yourself. Don't think that the magic pixies are going to do it. That's it. This isn't a hotel. Um, so, 
And, and some people are really good at insourcing. A lot of people I work with, though, are really bad at it. And high-achieving women in particular are just appalling at it because it's almost like they have this whole, I've got to compensate for not being at home as much or I have to, you know, compensate for the fact that I've got this amazing career or amazing business and amazing job. And so I'll come home and kind of do everything for my kids because I don't have the time to sort of give them quality time. I mean, it's just rubbish. Um, I think it can be deep in that. It's that and it can, it's also I'm a perfectionist and I do it better. That's also oh, absolutely. what I do. Yeah, no, no, oh, I talk a lot about that. I do it myself. It's yeah. faster. It's easier if I just do it Isn't it a great way to not connect with it in a loving way? Isn't it a great way to avoid actual intimacy? It's crazy. It's, yeah. and, and it's about, you know, look, we want to bring up our kids to be independent and resilient and um, capable. So, mm. you know, get them to make their beds. And from, by that, I mean, as long as the doona's off the floor, I'm happy, okay? Don't remake the bed in front of your kid because you've just totally demoralised them yeah. in terms of their effort to make the bed. So mm -hmm. if you have to, maybe sneak back in later and kind of flatten it a little bit, but let your standards drop, okay? Your five-year-old is completely capable of putting their dinner on the bed. It's not going to look like the front cover of bed, bath and table, but by the time they get to kind of 12 or 13 or 14, they will be doing a good job. Yeah. So don't correct in front of them. Sweeping generalisation again, it's amazing how many people I meet who come from farms where this isn't even a thing. The bed is made, the cows are milked, the whatever's been brought in from the barn and the thingy's been put on the block, and they've just done a morning of chores and it's never a debate, it's never a negotiation, it's not an argument and it's not a rebellion. It's just done. This is what you do. It's just what you do. This yeah. it's, You're at the age now, of course, developmentally, appropriately. I don't need a bunch of comments saying, oh, but what if they're too young? We are getting that. <laughs> it's developmentally appropriate. Please see yeah. these, 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 these ideas as their best. Absolutely. And look, family is a team sport. And I'm always banging on about this. Family is a team sport. So everyone gets to contribute. And if your three-year-old can put away their you know, socks into the drawer and put their shoes away, then the three-year-old partner can do the same. Yes. So, you know, everyone just chip in and get this stuff done. And it always, you know, amuses me. I, I laugh loudly on the inside and sometimes have been completely inappropriate and laughed very loudly on the outside as well. But I have, you know, when I have speaking engagements and, and sometimes, you know, someone will put their hand up and they'll say, oh, look, you know, I, I love the whole idea of insourcing and I would love to be able to do it with my kids, but they're just not old enough yet. And I'll say, well, how old are your kids? And they'll say, oh, 13 and 15. And it's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say, look, you know, there's a deeper problem here. It's you. Yeah, it is. I was literally milking cows at 11 at 6 o'clock in the morning. It wasn't a discussion. And I'm not saying because I'm from a farm. We had a year where we did really badly on a farm and the farm failed. But So I'm not from farming stock. But it was just what I did. I got up and I milked that damn cow every morning, no matter what, with my freezing little hands. As a 12-year-old, I think I was, trying to squeeze this cow's trying to make it happen. And then it was about carrying it and not spilling it. I was so incredibly empowered by having this responsibility and not spilling the milk. That was a big deal. And I was 12. Yeah. I know people who still make their uh, children's lunch at the age of 13 and 14. So they're still making sandwiches. Oh, no. That's rod for your own back. You're yeah. literally setting your, your, you're setting your entire, their teenage years up, how they're going to look. 
Mum, can I have a sandwich? I don't know. Can you? <laughs> yep. Go and have a look in the, in the cupboard. And, and that's the, that then is a perfect segue because that's the second part of Analyze where you actually look at what your habits are costing you. Yes. Um, oh, so I like this section. Th there's four different cost lenses yep. for every task you perform. There's financial cost, your time is money. Um, and there's a very easy way to work out what your hourly rate is. There's a fantastic um, app called the Harvard Meeting Calculator. Yep. And you just key in um, a few details, look it up, and it'll tell you exactly what your time is worth on the hour. Um, so, for example, if your time is worth $50 an hour and you spend an hour a day on Facebook every day, that's $18,250 of your time a year. Wow. Is this the best use of my time? So that's financial mm -hmm. cost. The second cost lens is opportunity cost. Yeah. So every time you choose to perform a task, there's always going to be a trade-off. What else could I have done with mm -hmm. my time? Um, so, you know, classic example, if you're on the Facebook for an hour, what have I done with that time? I could have won a new client. I could have um, engaged with my kids. I could have gone for a walk. You know, I could have lived one of my values. Yes. Um, the third lens is emotional cost. Mm. How do I feel about how I'm living? Mm. Um, and this one plays out when you're making your 16-year-old lunch for, <laughs> to take to school. I mean, come on. Yeah. Um, physical cost is the fourth one. Let me just add a caveat there, Kate. I'm not suggesting out there if you're, if you're paying attention to thinking, well, that's me, I'll change it now. You don't suddenly yell at your kid, make your own sandwiches. It's not an absolutist thing. They're, if we've been training our families to behave a certain way around us, they have an expectation that tomorrow they'll be able to behave a certain way around us. Yeah. So we're not suggesting you suddenly just go and bottom line everybody and say everything's going to be different from now on. You don't email or text anybody. It's never going to be the same again from now on. There's a new sh It's none of that. It's a gentle process of discussion, renegotiation, moving the boundaries one at a time. They've had an expectation you'll be a certain way. You're now wanting to change how you are. Not everybody's comfortable with that. People get used to how you are. So there's no absolutism in this if you're listening. It's not about you now blame them. You don't say, I can't believe all these years I've been making your own sandwiches. What are you? <laughs> it's, it's all not, your fault. <laughs> it's not about blame. It's not about fault. It's not about shoving it. It's just a gentle renegotiation, gentle language. Like maybe it's time perhaps maybe you could consider having a go at that. I think you're probably more than ready and I've probably been holding you up in that area. Yeah. Let yeah. me get out of your way. I'd love you to soar in that. That's it. Well, look, with family being a team sport, one of the things I talk about, because it is a process, you know, you can't just kind of rip a Band-Aid off because no. you've suddenly decided that you want your kids to help. Yeah. So the process I talk about is, you know, having that team meeting and sitting down and saying, look, you know, family's a team sport. This is what I'm going to do. So get yes. the whiteboard out. The kids could write it all up. This is what mum or dad is committing to. This is what I'm yeah. going to do. What are you guys going to do? And leave it up to them to kind of volunteer. And, yeah. and you know, I talk a lot in the book about manipulation and, and some of it is manipulating. You know, at this point in the discussion, um, you know, they think it's a game. You know, we're all nominating these things we're going to do. Hell no, it's not a game. Write it all up. And this is now I'm going to reinforce this. Yeah. So, you know, if you're committing to tidying your room, I want it tidied. Mm. And, you know, I'd honestly rather you be the mum or the dad who nags and reminds as opposed to the mum or dad who constantly does. William, you're just creating the employee of the tomorrow that I can't hire if you do that. If you keep doing it for them, you're making them <laughs> unemployable because they turn up and they're like, they've got no clue. They're waiting for things to just happen and be easy for them. No, yeah. that's just And they want to be the boss five minutes later. 
it's just just it's just not that easy life without mother cleaning up it's tougher it's it really is so you know you're quite right that's a really good section guys get into that and then where do we go Step four is reframe. So that's yes. where you'll make the decision as to exactly what you're going to outsource, insource, and reject. Yes. Your rejects fall into two categories. There's total rejects, which is just the silly stuff we do because we do yeah. it by habit. And once you sort of start to shine a light on this stuff and you analyze your day and you think, oh, why do I actually do mm. it that way? Why have I, you know, classic example, people picking up and checking their phones within 10 minutes of waking up. Yeah then you're living a completely reactive day because yeah. your messages and your inbox or your or everything in your emails is someone else's to-do list. Yes. It's not your to-do list. Mm. That's people saying, I want, I need, when is, can you? And you just mm. lost control of the agenda within 10 minutes of waking up. And it's so also that's a feeling classic anxiety. Reason. It also feels, if I do that, I, I can feel myself getting anxious. Like, oh, my mm. God, that needs to be done. Or I haven't, it's just how to trigger, because I can go to anxiety like that. How to trigger my anxiety Tell me my emails that I'm letting people, where I could let people down if I don't get to it straight away. And I'm just training them to just keep relying on me. So get off the, I don't have emails now coming to my house. I have to go into a different room, switch it on. There's no mobile devices where I can be contacted. It's been so great for my mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Because we're constantly accessible. And then if we don't create the right boundaries, then people, we've set people's expectations that yeah. we will be available. Yes. So, you know, you look at your behaviours and your habits from your map and, and some of those are rejects, classic rejects. Mm. Um, then there's partial rejects, which is things you do need to do, but you could just be smarter about how and when you do them. So, yes, I do need to shop because we need food, but I'm not going to do it in peak hour or I'm going to set up online shopping so I don't even have to go to the supermarket at all. Yeah. Um, so just analysing your behaviours and making decisions about what you're going to do differently. So that's the sort of the reframe section. And then the final section is take control where that's where the rubber hits the road. You implement and you start um, delegating, insourcing, outsourcing, rejecting, focusing on your musts, which are your values-led behaviours. Yeah. And making enough or having enough time now for me first, which are your wants. I want to go jogging. I want to catch up with friends. I want to see my dad. I want to sleep in. You know, whatever Mm. you want, we need to build ourselves into our calendars and make time for ourselves. And then we need to turn up. I think every now and again we need to put ourselves first. One of the things we say to our new members when they join us all the time is it's time you put yourself first on your own to-do list and not number 25. Mm-hmm. It's, it's okay to put yourself first because you can only have to give that which is within you. So fill your cup up. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Now, the things that get in the way of doing this, you wrote a whole section about uh, imposter syndrome. What's your favourite one? So I'll go you through some of the ones you covered. Imposter syndrome, busy lifestyle syndrome, superwomen, saying yes to everything, judgment, guilt, it's easier if I do it myself. My kids, I go, you do a whole bunch. What's your favourite one that, or the one you see that's mo- most prevalent and what do you suggest that we do about it? I know my favourite. Uh, look, my favourite's imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, favourite being the wrong word, I guess, is it's yeah. my, my most, most, uh, it's the most annoying for me. Yes. Um, and I, I see it. And look, I guess it's a two-edged sword for me because pr- probably I would not be in business if some amazing high-achieving women didn't feel like imposters. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, it's one of the things that we need to cure for. And 
I, you know, I've got a, a beautiful, amazing, incredible 16-year-old daughter and I don't want her growing up with that sense of being an imposter or, you know, it's going to kind of tap on the shoulder and quietly ask her to leave the room. You know, we got it wrong. You're not the person we thought you were. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's an epidemic. And um, every single one of my clients, every single one, I could not name one client who hasn't in some level or at some level doubted their abilities to be in the role that they're in. And for mine, I I wrote an article about this recently and it kind of went berserkers on um, LinkedIn. It's had sort of 17,000 views so far about how I feel I contracted imposter syndrome after I'd had my kids. You know, I was floating along in, in my career and was, you know, really successful and I worked hard and, and, you know, I created my success by working hard and having a bit of talent, but that determination. And it wasn't until I had my kids that self-doubt started to creep in. And I, I talk about it from the perspective that, you know, once you have kids, it's kind of open slather. Every Tom, Dick and Harry thinks that they can comment on your ability as a mother or your parenting style or your decision to work part-time or full-time or not at all or put the kids in creche or not at all or breastfeed or not at all. And everybody has an opinion. Mm. And I feel, I think that it, that kind of started to undermine my confidence. Mm. And once you start doubting your confidence, um, it then kind of leached into my working life. And I started to doubt my confidence and my abilities professionally. So, you know, I, I absolutely feel I kind of contracted imposter syndrome once mm. I became a mum. Mm. So what do we do about it? Well, it's, it's, it's simple. We, we sit down and we really reflect on those feelings and, and ask ourselves where they're coming from. Um, we make a list of all the amazing things we are, um, all of our achievements, Every day, write down your wins. Get a sticky note and just put it on the board. And at yeah. the end of the year, take a photograph of that board. And I want to see it covered in sticky notes. Yeah. And then turn around and tell me you doubt yourself. Yeah. Um, I want you to share and talk about this with other women so that it becomes less um, stigmatized. Let's yeah. not kind of pretend that we've got the makeup on and we're looking beautiful and we're all coping and it's fantastic and post these, you know, stylized shots on social media which just undermines everyone else Mm. let's talk about the shit days but most importantly talk to yourself the way you would talk to your daughter Mm. when she expresses those feelings of doubt Mm. or or to your best friend if your best friend came to you and said i feel fake or phony or like an imposter Mm. you would you would reflect that back to her and tell her all the amazing things and talk Mm. to her about how crazy her thinking is start talking to yourself that way Starting the conversation, one of the things that struck me about the book is when we talk about imposter syndrome, we have to be willing to be a little vulnerable and be because imposter syndrome is literally the opposite to being vulnerable. It's about looking like I've got the suit of armour on, I've got it all together, please don't notice that I'm actually feeling quite fragile today. It's that kind of thing. So I th- I'm going to add to the list, be okay with being a little vulnerable and feeling that vulnerability and yeah. sitting with it without fighting it off because the moment we run away from that feeling, we're back to imposter syndrome. It's like this yeah. ping pong game that we could play or pinball yeah. machine. Yeah. So sitting with, I feel a bit fragile about this or I'm not being, a, ex- the moment we accept and uh, reject an emotion, we're rejecting part of ourselves. Yeah. So it's really accepting. I feel a bit fragile right now. I accept that emotion don't 
resist it. Don't sit in it for weeks. That's pointless. But okay, so that's what fragility feels like. Hmm. At least let yourself feel it. Yeah. And then, then, you know, tap into your resilience and, and come out on top of it and challenge it and say, yes. well, look, the, you know, I'm feeling this way for a reason, but let me challenge this. Yeah. Here are all the reasons why I can prove that I'm not a phony. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, accept the fact that we all fake it from time to time. Yes. We don't know everything. No. You know, I'm constantly winging it. But there's my greatest achievements, my greatest um feelings of success and, and powerfulness and awesomeness have always come from moments where I've pushed myself past that feeling of being fake. Yeah. You're only going to have your greatest life on the other side of that line. Mm. I'm trying to get in touch with what it was for me when I used to have that. It was getting reference points of where I was capable and where I was willing to learn. So I looked at success and that really helped me, but really it was looking back reference points where I was willing to embrace the not knowing and I was willing to embrace curiosity and I was willing to be open because that openness eventually gave me confidence, which meant imposter syndrome faded away. Mm. So I didn't necessarily measure the outcome all the time, but the process, what got me to the place where I felt pretty good about myself, it was the process of being willing to learn and being open to something different mm. until it faded away. Yeah. It became irrelevant in my life. Yeah. And understanding the process is great and so important because then it's replicable. So you yes. can do it again and again. So each time you have those feelings of doubt, it's like, well, this is the process I took myself through last time. Yeah, you're building on it. I love yeah. that. Is there anything else you'd want to share, Kate? About imposter syndrome? No, about anything. Oh, generally. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, look, we've had an amazing talk. I, I um, It set me up for I know what's a successful day because it's you know it reinforces I guess that whole concept of focusing on what's most important having genuine authentic awesome discussions with other amazing women and it's it's like a um you know I feel like I've plugged myself into the electricity and I've got all this energy so today is going to be a good day oh it's been amazing connecting with you congratulations on all your creating and the way you change the trajectory of your life so you could experience it the way you wanted to. I just very empowering story. And we took so many things away from this. We looked at relationships, relationships with ourselves, relationships with others. We walked through the me first process, the smart process in poster syndrome. We looked at insourcing, which I think is probably my favorite thing, outsourcing and insourcing. I think that's the dynamics of how to insource within the families. That's pretty well redefining families if we do that well and with grace and aligned with our values that's going to be the greatest source of us knowing we've got a team with us Mm. rather than people being against us so lots of great stuff for people to take away thank you so much it was a pleasure talking to you thanks for having me on the show give me some